welcome to the Highland Good Food Podcast. My name is Emma and this week we're going to be discussing bread. First we'll be joined by Andrew Whitley from Scotland Bread and Bread Matters. Andrew will be discussing how the industrialisation and globalisation of bread has transformed our diet and what we actually all regard as bread. Then we'll be joined by Cole Gordon from Inch and Down Farm near Enfor Gordon and he'll be telling us all about his exciting plans for his new project which is a seed to loaf bakery on his farm. And then finally we'll be joined by Nikki Burdekin from Strathpeffer Artisan Bread. She'll be giving us the insight of the life of a micro bakery here locally in the Highlands and how she's adapted to the challenges of COVID-19. So welcome Andrew Whitley from Bread Matters and Scotland to Bread to the Highland Good Food podcast. It's great to have you here today. Could we start off just by Andrew, if you give us a little bit of a description about um, Bread Matters and Scotland to Bread. Good morning, Emma. It's lovely to speak to you. The Bread Matters grew out of my experience of running a, an organic bakery, which I started in Cumbria in the 1970s. I started a bakery on a bit of a whim, but it, um, it survived and grew into one of the first organic bakeries supplying sourdough bread, which has taught me a lot about the food system. I left the village bakery in 2002 and went on to uh, set up Bread Matters as a vehicle for running bread making courses to, to earn a living, but also to respond to the enormous number of requests I'd had from people who wanted to know how to make real bread and particularly sourdough. So this might sound like a simple question, Andrew, but why does Bread Matter? It does really make a difference what bread we eat, not just because it'll have an effect on our bodies personally and make us either healthier or perhaps less healthy. It has implications for the economy that we support by our bread buying choices. And that feeds right back to not just the shop we buy it from, but the farmer who grew the wheat, where he grew it and in what soils, without healthy soils. You know, if you have an unhealthy soil, you can't expect to grow healthy crops. There's been a degradation of our food supply, and it starts with bread. That's why I call the book and, the, in a sense, my business, Bread Matters, because it does actually matter enormously what bread we eat. And it's not as though it's the only thing we eat, and these arguments apply equally to other key food products. But um, bread has been, and indeed still is, quite an important plank of many people's diets, despite the, the move away from carbohydrates, uh, particularly refined carbohydrates, and the perception, um, which is a very real one for many people, the bread doesn't agree with them. If we were going to address this, we needed to have effectively a change to the whole system from the ground up. And that meant attending to, to the degradation of our soils through industrial agriculture and chemical fertilizers. Now that's changed in industrial agriculture with minimum tillage and zero tillage and that kind of thing and an attempt to do some kind of rotations or under-sowing and that kind of thing. But actually, um, it's a long way from embracing the full sort of ecological uh, approach, which, which supports biodiversity at multiple levels. And so I see the, the key sort of golden thread in all this as being diversity, the notion that if we have a good soil, we'll have a lot of diversity of microorganisms if we don't respect those microorganisms and give them the best chance, then we won't get the reliable, sustainable yields that is our aim. And feeding through from that, the plants that we harvest need to have a degree of ever-increasing diversity within their genetics so that 
they can resist the climate shocks and the, the damage um, that's potentially caused to them by variations in season, rainfall, drought. So it appears to be getting worse with climate heating. Yeah, I'm interested in what you're saying about diversity and how we grow wheat, also in the grain itself. Do you think diversity is also needed in how we process and distribute our bread in Scotland? I would argue that it also is important in terms of the the routes to market of the bread that we make. Um, so from the bakery stage, I think we should be using sourdough, the very complex microorganisms in that. But we also shouldn't just be selling it to supermarkets where due to the centralised nature of the thing, there are bigger carbon costs brought in by central distribution and that sort of thing. But also there's a sort of anonymity in the bread which has to has to sort of speak to the customer via labels or via bogus marketing actually about softness or shelf life or things which are not really to do with the ability of that bread to support healthy life in the in the customer and those messages can only really be conveyed by a multitude of different personal connections between who's making the bread and who's selling it and who's eating it and the closer those can be to the person who's growing the original grain and flour that's going into it then the more meaning there is, the more likelihood it is that people will um, feel a sense of ownership of the whole food process rather than being at the, forgive the expression, at the sort of the arse end of the thing, forced if you're on low income. And I would say it is really forced to eat the poorest quality food because that's been the deal for 250 years for the industrial population of the UK. If you don't grow your own, and you don't have much money, you have to buy the cheapest food. And the cheapest is always the kind of food that's had the most hollowed out of it, all the good bits taken away. Oh, that's a really interesting point, Andrew. So with the backdrop of industrial bread being the norm for a couple of hundred years, why did you create Scotland Bread and what is it? So the characterisation of the food system and the need for diversity motivated me to get interested in the whole the whole system from the well, I was already interested in the soil, but the particular uh, wheat varieties that I'd been using as a baker for 30, 40 years. And at the same time, I became aware of the most extraordinary fact that Scotland was growing every year around about a million tonnes of wheat, one million tonnes of wheat. That would make... Uh, you know, it's a billion or something like that, loaves from a, from a million tons of wheat. So it's enough. If that wheat was all made into bread, it would be enough to feed the population of Scotland with all the bread products that it, it currently eats many times over. And yet none of it was being used except for a tiny, tiny bit used by one or two very small mills. We felt that we could do better in terms of growing more grain locally in healthy soils and using varieties that were better attuned to the Scottish climate. Because the word in the industry and among conventional farmers is you can't grow bread making wheat in Scotland. But it used to. It's just that the definition of what is a a good bread making wheat has been manipulated by the big industrial milling and baking and retailing conglomerates, monopolies, to rule out anything that uh, might look a little bit different. But that isn't good enough, really. That's an example of how when you get monopolistic corporate entities dominating a food system, um, they cut the corners to suit themselves um, with scant regard for either the environment or human health. And so what we're proposing is to try and create multiple examples of 
close connections between farmers growing better quality wheats and we're doing a lot of research into ones either historic Scottish varieties or Scandinavian ones or frankly from anywhere in the world. There's nothing wrong with looking for grains which have the capability within them to adapt to Scottish soils. And the idea that we will find one silver bullet or golden bullet, which will be one variety that, that then can be carpeted across Scotland and transform our food system is also erroneous. What we are hoping to do is to find and develop lots of locally adapted mixtures. That's really interesting, Andrew. What an exciting concept. But what do you think about the belief that good bread or real bread or sourdough bread is expensive and therefore not affordable for lots of folk? Actually, a flour will cost more than the cheapest flour you can buy in a, in a major discounting supermarket. But you're not comparing like with like if you say, oh, it's just too expensive, because what we're trying to, to assert and use the best possible molecular biological science to evidence is that if you eat less but better, that is better for not just for you, because you consume less, therefore you can keep the pounds off and you can feel healthier and your gut works better. But it also works for the farmer because providing they're paid fairly in the system, and it, it also, at a bigger scale, works for the environment because the soils will not be sweated and um, trashed so much in the, in the attempt to produce 10 tonnes a hectare of wheat in Scotland, which is a phenomenal amount of wheat. Um, you know, America doesn't produce that per hectare, it doesn't put so many fertilizers on, it just has bigger areas and they produce less per hectare. They're doing other unspeakable things to their food as well, but they're not necessarily trashing their soils quite as much as farmers are forced to by the current system. That's so good to look at in that way, that folk don't need to eat as much bread to feel full and satisfied, so the cost potentially even out. And yeah, the benefit to the farmers and the land would be huge too, I guess. So are you mainly looking at sort of heritage grains? Is that what you would call them? So when we look at what needs to be done in Scotland in terms of the bread system, we are informed by what Scotland has been able to do in the past, i.e. feed itself from its own fields. But we're not, um, this is not a sort of heritage museum project in terms of finding um, grains that were grown in yesteryear and, um, you know, going back to a kind of horse-drawn past. Um, far from it. We're, we're absolutely cutting edge in terms of the research that we're leveraging in order to do this. Um, we're really interested in the balance of protein epitopes in the varieties that we're growing to see whether or not they have more or less of certain elements that are toxic to people with celiac disease or gluten intolerance. You know, we're absolutely on the ball in that. And indeed in the Highland, it's particularly striking. Quite a lot of bread that gets trucked up to the highlands and islands is actually baked as bread south of the border and comes up as bread rather than being baked locally in bakeries. So our vision is to unpick that in a logical way to say if we could make the supply chain as they, they say shorter, get people closer to the source of their food, it would have two good effects. One would be obviously to take food bars out of it give people more immediate access to, to fresh food rather than being dependent on stuff which is always wrapped in plastic. But it also means that they've got a chance of understanding what a local baker is trying to do with their bread. So what opportunities do you see there being in the Highlands specifically? Can we grow bread grains up here? In the Highlands there, there are enormous opportunities because 
up in the Black Isle. The Black Isle has got a favoured microclimate and wonderful soils, and there's some very good quality wheat can be grown on the Black Isle. It's not not much is grown there at the moment, but that could be a, a sort of breadbasket for much of the north of Scotland if the distribution system and the bakery system were transformed to one of much more localised mills and bakers. And the key element, as I said, was was diversity. We want lots of different little mills and little farms and little bakers. And with that vision, I guess more jobs would be created. I think that there are certain occupations which should have more jobs in them. And the Real Bread campaign, which I helped to found a few years ago, has a mantra, more jobs per loaf. That's the absolute inverse of industrial efficiency. And it's very conscious. We want to be less efficient if you're going to measure us just by output per person, because we're being much more efficient in terms of environmental impact, in terms of the social benefit coming from our bread. Also, just the enormously richer environment that there is when you go round the corner and you know the person who made the bread and you can talk to them over the counter. Andrew, do you know, you know, I'm blown away by the amount of knowledge and experience that's in your head. And I know we've just covered a tiny amount there compared to what you could share. Is there our listeners are really inspired and interested about what they've been hearing you speak about today, Andrew? Where could they find out more information or where would you signpost them to, to either find out about what you're doing and your companies are doing? Or if there's other resources out there you think would be a good place for them to mm-hmm. start? Well, I think, first of all, they could look at scotlandthebread.org and they'll find a website with quite a lot of information about the grains we grow, the work we do, and an online shop where they can buy our flour. And they can also buy baking equipment, proving baskets, tins, that kind of thing that are not easy to get in good quality perhaps elsewhere, but also books about baking and also sourdough starters, which is another thing I've developed over the last few years, They went mad during the um, lockdown. I made more in March and April than I did in the whole of 2019 uh, because people were buying flour and trying to make their own bread. And I, I mean, sales have dropped off, which is absolutely what I would have predicted and wanted because you only need to buy it once and then you've got a sourdough for life. I'm so grateful for your time. I really am, Andrew. Thanks very much for joining us this morning. You're very welcome. Thank you. So now welcome to Cole Gordon from Inch and Down Farm, a livestock farm near Invergordon. Cole has great plans to develop a seed-to-loaf sourdough bakery, operating at a village scale on a subscription-based model. So let's dive in and find out a little bit more about Cole's exciting plans. So Cole, could you start off by just giving us a wee description about Inch and Down Farm? Sure, yeah. Um, So the farm is currently mostly farmed by my father and it's a 270-acre slightly upland livestock farm just north of Invergordon where dad raises mostly sheep and cattle for the meat market. My granddad also farmed this farm and we've been farming in the area for, for generations. But I moved back from the south of England just at the beginning of lockdown to start working out how to derive a second income from the place and also moving the farm in slightly different directions. So that kind of leads us on to your exciting seed-to-loaf bakery idea. So could you tell us a little bit more about your model that you're planning to implement? Yeah, so the idea is it's a seed-to-loaf bakery. The idea is that we'll be trying to deal with the whole process from start to finish, which involves developing appropriate grain for this and then growing it in an ecological way. 
we'd then mill it using a stone mill that we'll hopefully try to purchase and we'd slowly ferment sourdough bread from it which we'd bake in a wood-fired oven and it'd be then delivered in a local area in a subscription-based model and we'd be looking at just a small-ish amount of customers so we sort of like to cap it at about 150 different households that we'd be trying to get to buy into this pre-sold subscription model which would be sort of similar to something like a veg box or a CSA, except they'd be getting bread delivered. And yeah, this would be very much not a massive thing. I've run a wholesale bakery before where I was making by myself about 500 loaves a night. And that's definitely not what we're trying to do here. It's, it's going to be much more low key with a more sustainable lifestyle, as well as just hopefully a more sustainable type of bread. It's only going to be a small part of the whole farm. So we're likely to top it at about 15 acres of the farm will be put into this system and the rest will be still working within this livestock context that my father operates. And I think that's really important when we're looking at ways of having more sustainable bread is to integrate it with livestock systems. Well, cool. This just sounds really exciting. I've actually never heard anything like this type of model ever before. Where did you get your inspiration from for this idea? Yeah, so whilst it's pretty niche, it's definitely not a model that doesn't exist. In France, it's quite a common model. They call it the Paysan Boulanger model, which I'm very inspired by. There's people like Nicolas Soupier and Jean-Francois Berfelot, who are very famous in France, who, who run this kind of model, and it's, it's got a lot of respect within France. The first model that was sort of mimicking this started last year in Wales, called Torfatir in Pembrokeshire. So I'm very inspired by what they're doing. But, I mean, for me, it's mostly like, how do we... The starting question was just how can we enable grain to be grown more sustainably and then find a market to allow that to happen. So, yeah, I've had lots of inspirations from people who have been working in this for a long time. It's definitely for me, it's, it's about the whole system as opposed to just the bread. And we're really sort of reinventing local grain economies from the ground up. And this is not just myself who's doing this up here. It's happening across the UK and, and the world, really. Brilliant. It sounds super exciting. This seems like there's actually a movement going on, a movement across the country, but then as you're saying, a movement that's sort of going on a global scale as well. So, Absolutely, yeah. It's really important for me to also try to integrate this business model with a lot of the research work that I'm doing with the grains. Um, so we're actually also trying to start sort of develop the farm into somewhat of a seed research hub, uh, which will be one of a number across the UK that are all working in partnership. And we're inspired by these guys. So John Lett, he is a massive inspiration for me. What he does is he requests a large number of, of, of different types of varieties from gene banks, and he grows them out in mixed populations is what he calls it. So it's just, yeah, in the field, it's just thousands of different varieties rather than a single variety. And this is much better in terms of being resilient as a system, but also there tends to be a lot more flavor and nutrition within this. But you do take a little bit of a hit on the yield. And then Martin Wolf, he approached this in a similar way, but with a slightly different approach, uh, which was to select something like 14 different varieties, which he had selected on yield and quality, uh, and then crossbred them every way that was possible to create something like 200 varieties that, again, then got mixed together in this what we call population. So this is really the way that we're thinking about it, rather than just a single monoculture. Um, or a single variety that tends to be the way that most grain is grown in this country. We need to think more about growing it as a population 
and then integrating this with all sorts of other ideas coming from regenerative agriculture. But it's really important for me anyway that this seed is available and currently there's some legal challenges that stop it being available. But yeah, there's these emerging networks across the UK and Ireland that are really looking at ways to try to rebuild these local grain economies that over the last sort of 60 years, they've really just disappeared more so than pretty much any other sector in agriculture, the, the grain sector, there basically is only one model that it can operate in. And that's not what it historically has been at all. But now we're, we're really having to start from the bottom up. When I started getting interested in this, this was not um, something that was talked about a huge amount and it was pretty niche, but it's really exciting over the last 10 years that this is now something that there is a really vibrant, exciting, passionate conversation that people are being really collaborative about trying to change not only are there all sorts of individual parts happening across the UK and Ireland, but they're working together, which is for me the most exciting part of it, that we're trying to change it from the ground up. That does sound really, really encouraging. Your ideas are really obviously quite big, Cole. So you've got what you're planning to do at Inch and Down Farm, but then I can see how you're, through what you're saying, how that sort of fits in at a national and an international scale. What sort of support do you envisage that you'll need to make it work and, and not really just make your farm work, but make this whole wider vision work? So in terms of just what our farm will need, I mean, the models is pretty simple. And essentially, we just need to lock in a little bit of funding for the mill, but also then we need to just find 150 households within 10 miles to make it work. So if you're listening and you're interested, then just you can follow me on, on my Instagram page and we'll have updates of how you can get involved at a later point, but we're not quite there yet. In terms of slightly wider picture, it's looking at sort of the bottlenecks within the systems. So currently every day there are new bakers and bakeries popping up. So I don't think it's really a problem that to find people who are interested in being bakers. And equally, more farmers all the time are becoming more interested in going down slightly more ecological ways of approaching things. So I don't think the problem is finding the farmers. The, the real bottlenecks are that we don't have seed that's fit for purpose to work in ecological systems because all the seed that's currently available has been designed for high inputs. There are a number of legal barriers in there. Uh, there are about 33 available varieties of wheat in the UK. And if you are trying to use anything that's not one of those varieties, then it's essentially illegal. You could get two years in jail for just exchanging it. So there's a real legal problem that we have to try to find seed and, and share seed that is fit for purpose if we want to move towards more sustainable systems. So that's, that's kind of one major challenge. And then the second one is, is millers and mills. And they, as with the seed, have sort of disappeared in the last sort of 60 to 100 years. It used to be that they were across the Scottish countryside. You would, you would find mills and millers everywhere. And their sort of folklore and folk song is just full of them. And in my little glen, there were at least four mills within the last hundred years that were operating. Um, and that's just within a sort of five mile radius, 10 mile radius. And now, as far as I understand it, in the Highlands, there's, well, I only know of a couple in the whole of the Highlands, really. Um, so we need to find some way of having more mills available to allow a local green economy to re-emerge. Yeah, it's a real challenge because we have to really start from the ground up because the local green economy has entirely disappeared over the last 70 years, 60 years. So yeah, there are a number of big challenges, but as I say, it's exciting because people are really sort of rising to these challenges. 
and working together to try to, to tackle them. I'm thinking, Col, about your idea of having the whole sort of seed to loaf on the one farm, so you'd be having your own mill. Do you think that's a sustainable option for all small farms to have their own mill? Is that the solution? I don't think it needs to be a solution at all. We need more mills, but we don't need each farm to have a mill. I have been involved in, so as I say, I moved up from, from England earlier this year, and when I was there, I was involved in setting up something called the Southwest Grain Network, which was basically a really simple idea that was just looking at bakers who are in the area and wanting to work with interesting grains that are grown in an environmentally friendly way, and then farmers who are growing this stuff and needing to find a market, and then just try and connect them. And we found millers who would be interested in doing this, as I say, it's a really simple idea, but it wasn't something that had happened before where we were just getting all the parties to speak to each other and map it out in some sort of way. So yeah, it's quite a modest in its scale, but it's a model that has since been adapted in different regions. And we now have East Anglia Grain Association. There's a Yorkshire Grain Alliance. There's a Southeast Grain Alliance. And then it's happening all over the UK that this idea of just connecting all the different players in making a grain economy work. And that for me is what's so exciting about what's happening right now is just that everyone is working together. And it's not about just everyone trying to have all the different parts of the cogs working on their own little operations, but just how can we all work together? And that is gonna require more mills. There's unquestionably, we need to have more mills, but not every farmer needs to be also a baker and a miller. Well, Coldwell, it sounds really positive and, and I'm getting a real feel of the sense that there's a there's a movement happening here and people are starting to come together. So you must feel really motivated about that. I know you've already touched on what you're feeling excited about, but is there anything else that you'd like to add into what you're feeling most sort of hopeful for when you look forward? I mean, yeah, I've touched on a lot of the stuff that gets me really excited about the fact that what's happening now seems to be based much more on a collaborative and sharing approach to things which the movement perhaps has not had that prior to the last couple of years, which is really great. But I think for me, the, the thing that excites me most is that this could be another option for farmers. Um, and I don't want to sort of sound like I'm slagging off farmers because currently there's, there's not a huge amount of other routes to market that they have other than this global commodity system where you're sort of selling in 29 ton units. So there's no, there's no space for small players or even for these bigger farmers to have a market for something that they want to do that is more interesting and more based on a place rather than just a faceless commodity. And I think what's happening right now, it's not going to be for everyone, but it's going to give farmers an option of a different type of way of, of what they want to do and what they're doing. So if we can get to that point where it's just a genuine second option, then I think we're going to achieve a lot of scale relatively quickly. Well, that is encouraging to hear. From what you're saying there, Cole, this model does sound really quite replicable. With that in mind, what is your vision for the Highlands? How do you think that bread consumption can evolve in the Highlands over the next few years? Uh, the Highlands, the vast majority of the Highlands, it has to be said, are probably not that suitable for growing arable crops and definitely not for growing wheat. But we do have a lot of good ground in the Highlands, which is suitable. And I think a portion of that can be used for thinking about things like what I'm talking about. So, yeah, there is scope for more land in the Highlands being put over to growing grain for bread. And yeah, 
my business is only going to be looking to attract 150 households. If this model can work, then hopefully it'll show that this kind of approach is, is an option for people that maybe don't have as much land as we do. But yeah, I think if it can work, it is a really scalable approach just because of how small it is and because there is space for lots and lots of other parties to get involved. Mills are now a lot more affordable than they've ever been before. So I think it's starting to become a viable option. Thanks, Cole, for, um, for all your, your super ideas and your enthusiasm there. It's been great to chat to you. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, yeah, as I say, we're slightly at early stages yet, so we don't have a website up and running. But if you want to give me a follow on at call underscore Gordon on Instagram, I'm quite active on there and we'll definitely be posting updates as they emerge. Thanks for that, Cole. That really does sound like a fantastic, innovative method and model for Community Bakery. Really good luck with that and look forward to following your journey. So now we get to talk to Nikki Burdekin from Strathpey for Artisan Bread. Welcome, Nikki. It's great to have you here on the Highland Good Food podcast. Brilliant. Great to be here, Emma. So, Nikki, we were blathering last week about everything that you've been doing during COVID-19 and it'd be great just to find out a little bit more about that, how your business has evolved and adapted to meet the local needs in that time. Yeah, it's been a, a very interesting time as, as well as a bit of a challenging time. So, yeah, the, the first thing I would say is that demand went through the roof. I think, I think maybe it's something we all felt as COVID-19 hit is where am I going to get my food from? I'm not supposed to be going out. How do I get it? So we were due to bake at the Saturday after sort of lockdown. And well, just to put it in context, I suppose, if I, if I look at this time last year, I was baking between 30 and 40 loaves of bread, maybe on a weekly basis. And that first weekend of lockdown, we baked 100 loaves. So that's, you know, for us is a, a massive uplift and we managed it. Uh, there was uh, myself and my daughter Ellie at that point was, was helping. And yeah, we, uh, we did it. And we, I think we were on a little bit of a high actually, because we were going round in the car delivering. And obviously at that point, it was quite strange. There was no cars on the road. I've seen very few people about. So that was the first thing that, that, yes, we had lots of interest, lots of people contacting us who'd never been our customers before. Obviously, there were our people who had been customers for a long time too. So, you know, a great mix of people who were obviously appreciating our bread because everything we bake is organic. But then I think the next thing that hit was the challenge of actually the flour because it's one thing to sort of have a massive demand for one week but then you've got to sort of maintain your supply links and that did give us a few headaches initially. So how did you overcome that challenge? Where did you end up getting your flour from? Well, I suppose I would normally go to Highland Whole Foods in Inverness and they were very good and when they could help us, they did. But uh, one of the really big helps to us was a company called Shipton Mill. And while I've always been buying their flour indirectly, they were very good, especially for micro bakeries, and you could just ring them up um, because their online platform went down very quickly, as I think a lot of the flour people. And so basically, as a micro bakery, I could ring up and order flour directly. And while it took a little bit longer to get here, then it meant I could sort of maintain our supplies. Yes, yeah, so it shows you in a time of a crisis like we've just experienced that our supply chains become even more 
heightened importance of them, don't they? And we, and we can see how fragile these systems are. And, and I think flour and bread were one of the first things to hit us, wasn't it? Yeah. Not only have you increased the amount of bread that you've been making, but you've also been delivering flour to people. Is that right? I have, yeah. We, um, one of the things that became apparent was that you couldn't get flour in the supermarkets. And I do believe that that was more to do with the packaging than the actual flour itself. But obviously I, I did have access to flour, really good flour. It's all organic. I have a whole range, you know, it's rye, it's wheat, it's wholemeal. I use the Scotland the Bread wholemeal and that the rye of late. And so what we actually thought was, well, you know, let's let's open this up. We've got flour. Let's share it. So, yeah, we started instead of just putting the, the loaves we'll be baking um, each week on our, uh, our bake email, we then started putting around which flowers that we had. I suppose it's one of our, our quirks of our little model is that the only real waste aspect, if you call it waste, is that we do have a lot of paper bags because we use the flour and then we have paper bags. So we actually started recycling the paper bags. So if there was, you know, flour that sort of matched the bags, then we'd be putting it back out in those bags. So, yeah, we felt we had a really good, a really nice recycling model. I mean, that's one of the things I love about baking bread is that there is absolutely no waste. I have some big paper sacks, but I often put my vegetable waste in and things like that. It goes straight into my compost heap. So there is very, very little waste to do with what we do. Um, I do use commercial, I, I make sourdough bread, but I do use commercial yeast as well sometimes. And it comes in little tins. And I started giving these little tins away to my customers. And so instead of them putting the money out in a, a plastic bag each week, we actually had like a little payment tin that we would just pass back and forth. Now, obviously with COVID, many people have gone to online payments. And that for me has been brilliant because it's meant I don't have to check and cash up and things like that. You know, the money's just going into the account. I have great customers that are always very meticulous and they're usually right about things. So it's taken away one aspect of the admin side. I meant I can concentrate on baking a bit more bread, which is really what we're about. Exciting, Nikki. So you were saying back at the beginning of the pandemic when it initially hit us here that you were up to your production levels to 100 loaves in a week. How does that compare to where you're at just now? Um, we're sort of, I would say, between sort of 70 and 80. So we've, we've definitely maintained a, a really good level. I'm not baking every week at the moment. Um, as, uh, as I told you last week, I actually managed to fracture a bone in my hand, which has sort of limited me. But um, both my daughters have baked bread with me over, you know, the time that we've been around. And so, yeah, we've been um, probably baking maybe every sort of 10 days, two weeks recently. And that seems to be a nice sort of sustainable way of doing it for us. You know, our customers, some people will buy it and freeze it. I have a lady who basically must buy bread and fill her freezer up. Totally. <laughs> so um, but it, it, it just depends. And um, it's just about trying to make it work for people, isn't it? Because for me before, I, I would really just go and buy what I needed at the time. I sort of live in Strathpeffer. I, I shop in Dingwall. I'm, I'm there multiple times a week. So I, I would just go and buy what I needed at the time. And COVID has made me change the way I shop. Obviously, you know, we're trying to minimize contact. So definitely got more plans in place and doing it once a week. And I think maybe this has, you know, made other people think about how they do it. Because while, you know, we have this notion of fresh bread, you know, in reality, the bread you're buying out of the supermarket, how fresh is it? So, you know, you've, you've got to look. Is it better to have some bread that has actually come out of the oven that day and landed on your doorstep that you then package and portion up into the right quantities for you, put in your freezer? You know, when you get that out in a couple of weeks time, you know, at the most, 
how does that compare to what you would buy from a shelf? I think it probably compares in the fact that it's probably a whole lot more nutritious and a whole lot more fish, <laughs> really, isn't yeah, it? It's definitely about the nutrition, yeah. I mean, you know, we have some good local bakers around this area, but one of the reasons I got involved with baking was within my family, we had some sort of food intolerance issues. And it's just shown me, you know, that it is a real balance. And it's not just about, is it wheat or a certain grain? You know, it's about the additives, it's about the yeast. You know, there's a whole range of things we can do to, to sort of manage those situations. So my daughter, who wouldn't have been able to tolerate a slice of white bread, can merrily tuck into um, some predominantly white sourdough and be quite happy on it. That's a really positive part of your story. It'd be really good, Nikki, if you could just explain a little bit about the model of Strathpey for Artisan Bread and how that how it all actually works and, and a wee bit of a background on when you actually started because you're you're actually a relatively new business, aren't you? Yeah, I would, I would say so. Yeah, I still can't believe it. We've we must have well. I had a conversation in August of 2017 with Gordon Gallagher, who used to own Strathpeffer Artisan Bread and used to go to all the local markets, often run by Transition Black Isle. And, you know, I've seen Gordon over the years and we were talking and he basically said, this is my last market. And it was like, oh, you know, what are you doing? And he went, no, this is my last market. I'm going to stop baking bread. And I went away that day and you know when you get a little a little worm in your brain and I just could not get this idea out of my head and I don't know I just kept thinking I could bake bread I like the thought of baking bread <laughs> and I, I sort of um, I did contact Gordon again but it took months you know we had a few conversations I didn't know anything about baking bread so Gordon basically said he'd happily bake a day with me and just get me you know to see what I thought and we coincided that with the launch of the Dingwall Food Assembly and so basically we baked some bread that day. We went along and the idea was to see what people thought of it. Was there any interest? Did people like it? We were blown away. Yeah, it was um, yes, uh, quite a high. Yeah. How can you <laughs> match that baking bread and feeling quite high on it at the end of the day? So, yeah, it's, it seemed to be the right thing to do. So that was in September and it wasn't until November that I actually got the ovens into my house I did go back and bake with Gordon again and really it took sort of the November December and then I think it was part way through January we actually joined the food assembly and started baking on a regular basis and that was a baptism of fire because I was just embarking on what I knew about things at that time and yeah there was a, a lot of learning to do but yeah it's been a really really positive experience so we went from using an online ordering platform with the food assembly and then latterly with the Dingwall Academy food market which was great great to get young people involved that was the real benefit of that grains some great feedback you know people in, enjoying the food and we'd always put some samples out and it was lovely to see people come by and sneak a bit and then come by again <laughs> so you know it's great to see people enjoying food and actually getting something from it and then what we did find was that maybe we were a little bit ahead of our time on the Dingwall Academy market and things did sort of fall away from it. And so at that point, I thought, well, I've got plenty of names. I know plenty of people. We'll just see what it brings. So I basically send out an email on a weekly or fortnightly basis, whatever's working for us at the time, and basically say what I'm baking and when I'm baking it. 
and I offer to deliver on a certain delivery route that I have that depending who I'm delivering to it can be between like a 30 mile route or maybe even up to 100 miles route if I'm going into Inverness. It's amazing how your business has evolved over the last few years and it's been wonderful for me to observe and to always like to enjoy the bed too. As you look forward from now where do you see Strathby for Artisan Bread going? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really exciting time. And in one way, there's sites constraints put upon us. I mean, one of the real joys of baking bread and going to, you know, some of the local markets, you know, was the fact you're interacting with people and being able to talk about the bread and, you know, its provenance and, and where the flowers come from and things like that. And I've been so lucky to be part of the Baking in the Community, Community Fermenters uh, workshops, you know, which again have changed so much through COVID. You know, we were supposed to be going down to Edinburgh for a one day workshop. And in reality, we've got like a little community that probably meets and chats at least once a month you know some amazing bakers out there so obviously we've got our own little bakery model but there's basically social enterprise bakers um the the grantham bakers in leith i think there's one called delicious where basically go around places and basically have little baking groups for people you know just so many different models and just give people a chance to access some really good nutritious food but also access people because i think that's one of the really nice social aspects about baking is that it takes time and uh, there's some very good social interactions. So for us and and where we're heading, um, I don't know exactly, but I suppose I feel very positive about it. I, I do feel that people will always need bread and having a slice of nutritious bread has got to be much better than having, you know, half a loaf of something that's got additives in, that's full of air. And that is really suited to a production process and not, and not the human body. So I think we've sort of lost sight of what our bodies need at times. And maybe that's why we're sort of in this food intolerance trap where we, you know, we feel we have to be so careful. And maybe we just need to go back to base. I mean, that, you know, that's a very blanket statement. And obviously there are some food allergies that have to be managed very, very carefully. But there's also I do feel that sometimes we just expect our bodies to cope with too much and we just need to simplify things. Um, as far as working with other people, yes, it would be fantastic if maybe sort of, you know, these conversations that, that you're having could lead to getting some sort of organized links together. Um, what I'm very aware of is that we're all best experts in our own product. And so, you know, you sort of have to do what's right there, you know, because we're not just about baking bread. You know, obviously, there's a big family aspect to what I do. I suppose for myself, I've always said that baking is really, really hard work, which I do love. But I think there's a real community aspect to it and what matters to me. And I think we must have all felt at some point during lockdown that you know, I really miss certain people or, you know, some social interaction. And it's, it's probably not possible at the moment. But, um, yeah, no, I, I think community bakeries are the way forward. You know, maybe we should be having a bakery in every village in the Highlands. And that would make us uh, more self-sufficient and more valuing of what we can do and shorten our supply chains because we've got great growing potential around here. And that's what I love about Scotland the bread. They're actually growing grain that is suited to Scotland's climate and not suited to a production process. So by doing that, we're getting the best out of it. We're getting the best nutrition and hopefully much better bread. Oh, Nikki, I think that's actually quite a nice place to stop because it's, (laughs) it's a real sort of positive kind of hopeful vision of the future. What I'm finding is that it doesn't really matter 
what we're actually talking about, whether we're talking about vegetables or livestock or bread, that this sense of community and this sense of connecting people to their food and connecting people to each other and to their producer is a real key part of making our local food system sustainable and resilient. And that theme and that idea is just coming through really, really loud and strong and clear. So thanks very much, Nikki, for joining us on the Highland Good Food podcast. It's been wonderful to hear about Strathpen for Artisan Bread and its journey so far and even more exciting about what your ideas are for the future. So thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Emma. It's always a pleasure. Take care. You have been listening to the Highland Good Food podcast. Remember to subscribe at highlandgoodfood.scot and follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. See you next time.